0: contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome and today we are talking to Warren Mundine, the highly respected and influential businessman. He's a political strategist and he is a strong advocate for empowering Australia's first people to build a sustained economy and to create business opportunities. He is also the director of the Indigenous Forum at the Centre for Independent Studies. He's a company director. He was president of the Australian Labor Party and a former chair of the government's Indigenous Advisory Council. Well, it's wonderful to have you on the Afternoon Light podcast, Warren, and uh, and particularly as we're going to talk today about uh, Robert Menzies and his record on Indigenous Affairs. There is a real story to be told here and one that's probably not I think, as well known as it should be. And I thought we'd just start off with your your thoughts, Warren, on, on what do you think of Menzies' record on Indigenous affairs? Do you think he gave much time and thought to, to issues relating to the Indigenous people in Australia?
1: He did, actually. It, 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 it's, it's really funny to think about this. I look at the, the things that you know, Sir Robert Menzies and his Cabinet and Government did for... Aboriginal Australians, Indigenous Australians. And uh, I think to myself, because when I was, you know, in the Labor Party, if it was a Labor Party Prime Minister who did some of these things, we'd have statues and we'd have a day off work and a parade and we'd have all these amazing things. Of course, you know, you mentioned the uh, 1962 voting franchise. You know, up until then, under the Constitution, it was... uh, it was states who if you had voting rights in the states then you could vote in the federal elections. So what you had was New South Wales Victoria, Tasmania uh, South Australia having uh, voting rights but uh, Aboriginals in Queensland and West Australia didn't and because they didn't have those rights. So, it was, so he uh, extended that voting right and how powerful was that because within 10 years we had uh, uh, Senator Member Bonner in the federal parliament and and we've been progressing ever since then
0: yeah it's interesting warren the the 1962 legislative change which was so important, it meant that all um, Aboriginal people living in Western Australia and Queensland, which were the states at the time that had disenfranchised Aboriginal people, they, they could now vote at Commonwealth elections. I mean, it's it's unthinkable in this day and age that certain people in Australia, particularly First Nations people, wouldn't be able to vote in, uh, in elections. But, but that 1962 legislative change um, and enfranchisement of, of so many Aboriginal people in Australia, Australia, it's never been given the profile, of course, of the, the 67 referendum, which is iconic in Australian history and, of course, overwhelmingly supported by the Australian people. Warren, why why do you think it took until 1962 to give Aborigines in Australia the vote in federal elections?
1: By uh, work of history, uh, anyone who uh, was uh, a subject of the browns of the uh, Whichever Aboriginals were in New South Wales and Victoria and, and Tasmania and South Australia, they got voting rights. Now, not, not to say that a lot did vote because of people on Aboriginal reserves and that didn't so much, but you know, other people did. And I've, I've, I've come across documentation in that when I was writing my book, my grandfather enrolled in 1915, and my grand uh, grandmother uh, to vote. And that was just uh, an amazing thing. So in my family, we've had this long history of voting. But in Queensland and Western Australia, they actually uh, did take the vote away from that. They didn't have the vote. In fact, in, uh, in legislation uh, in Queensland and Western Australia, uh, they didn't get voting rights until uh, Menzies uh, pushed that rights uh, and, and by an almost really shaming them you know, in a sense that, uh, that they had to have uh, give voting rights to Aboriginal people, and that's and that's what happened. Now it just shows a person uh, like uh, sort of Menzies, who was who, who who was able to take that challenge up and say, you know, this this is for all Australians, no matter who they are. All Australians should have you know, voting rights uh, for uh, uh, in the Commonwealth elections. Now he didn't have control of the state, but by that process and, and by pushing that, it, it's, it embarrassed uh, Western Australia. So, Western Australia and Queensland changed their, 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 uh, their voting laws, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and those states got, got the voting right. And the really magical thing out of that, if Sir Robert Menzies didn't do that, we wouldn't have had a, had a Senator Nibble Bolton. So he came from Queensland. He, he got his vote, and within ten years, he was as a member of the Liberal Party, and uh, he uh, convinced his fellow uh, party members to to put him up as as a senator for the for, uh, for the Queensland.
0: Oh the story of Neville Bonner is just extraordinary. The uh, amount of challenges and and deprivation he was able to overcome, and his resilience in the face of of some. Pretty terrible racism. Let's be honest; it was um, astounding. It's, you know, especially as a young boy, the the stories he told of um, of being so poorly treated when he went to school. It's an incredible story. And we had Sean Jacobs, who's just written a monograph on on Neville Bonner. He joined the Afternoon Light podcast a, a little while ago, and we had a, a wonderful chat about about Neville Bonner. But I wanted to ask you about the 67 referendum it obviously in 1967 it was the year after menzies retired he retired in january 1966 but referendums don't happen in a vacuum do they warren they, they there is uh, legislation that needs to be passed by the federal parliament in order to to hold a referendum and uh, in april 1965 when menzies was still prime minister he did announce the government's intention to hold the referendum on uh, the nexus in Section 127. 120, Section 127 said, and it's just incredible to read these words in 2021 and reflect on the fact that they were in the Constitution at one stage, well until 1967, it said, in reckoning the numbers of the people of the Commonwealth or of a state or other part of the Commonwealth Aboriginal natives should not be counted. I mean, it's no wonder that 90.7% of Australians voted yes to remove that section. They also voted yes to remove uh, section 5126, which was a section that didn't allow for the Commonwealth to pass laws in relation to uh, Aboriginal people and the amount of people who supported the 1967 referendum was the highest ever recorded in a federal referendum so this was overwhelming but 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 tell me Warren how important was the 1967 referendum it was important beyond the change to the constitution wasn't it
1: it was an amazing change in, uh, across australia across and it got through you know black white Pink, green, didn't matter who they were. They, uh, the Australian public, got really behind us. Uh, Sir Sir Robert Menzies knew that we could not go on as a nation without uh, not only uh, changing sections of the the Australian Constitution, but but we had to to move forward as a nation. And, uh, and, and as you said, you know, it wasn't 67 after his retirement. But to set up any uh, constitutional change, it has to have a, a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, and argument about it. And what, it what is it going to look like? And, and then it has to, and then it has to get uh, the, the support of, of uh, you know, all sides in Parliament. Really, if you're going to get the change, and then to put those arguments up, to design it, and put it to the Australian public. And uh, it's, it's, it's a, a long process. It just doesn't happen in five minutes. So Robert Menzies really uh, seen the Australian public and wanted to take this leadership in this area and move forward as a nation. Now, some people talk about us being a racist nation and being terrible. Look, I don't know any nation in the world that had has had a, a very good birth, you know. You see revolutions, you see wars, and you see a whole lot of things happening. But what I so uh, what I judge is on a nation is how they overcome that birth and how they build their nation forward. And the important thing for us, and this is what Menzies and the, the, the Coalition recognise, is the institutions we have in Australia. So you, if you have a problem or an issue. it needs to be fixed. We have institutions that can make those changes, the Westminster Parliament, the separation of the judiciary and the the legislator and the executives. We have these great institutions that make a difference. And even when we have some mistakes, you know, even the judges realise you can make a mistake, so they have an appeals court. We have those type of things, so mistakes can be corrected. And it's the same with the legislator, you know, We have laws and then we can see how those laws operate. So that was our blessing that we got when we had the foundation of this nation in 1901 was those very strong institutions. And and, and so Robert Menzies was uh, a lawyer, of course, and and, uh, he he knew how those institutions could be operated to do good.
0: And he was incredibly committed to the notion of equality, of all individuals, men, women, black, white, whatever in between, he uh, he held that up as uh, essential for a liberal state, which was the uh, you know his aspiration for Australia. As part of his cabinet, he had um, Paul Hasluck, who was a a Liberal MP, and he was Menzies' minister for territories. Paul Hasluck was was someone who devoted his life to indigenous affairs he had a master's in Aboriginal affairs policy which he got in um, 1940 and the work was published in 1942 as black Australians he was the, the real architect of of changing Australian policies from being race-based and focused on protective segregation to assimilation now assimilation has got a bad bad rap these days it was it was gradually a abandoned in the 1970s but in the 1950s under paul Hasluck and of course under robert menzies leadership there was a a real focus on on the drive to equality for indigenous australians wasn't there warren um and and particularly because the commonwealth government didn't have power up until 1967 over um making legislation in relation to aboriginal australians Paul Hasluck, as minister for the territories, was able to make legislation and and policies that related to Indigenous Australians in the territory, at least, and so that was held up in his aspiration, at least, as an as setting setting an example for other other parts of Australia and how to treat Indigenous Australians equally with their with their white white uh, brothers and sisters. But Warren. As an Aboriginal man, how do you look upon the program of reform of Paul Hasluck under under Menzies that he carried out in the Northern Territory? Do you, it, it. I mean, it. None of it. Nothing is perfect, and obviously, there's a context of the time, prejudices of the time that we we would reject these days. But uh, it certainly was a major step forward from the the segregationist policies um, prior to 1950.
1: Oh. It was, and it, and it, and it, and it took the both of them working together. Uh, Sir so Paul Hasluck, like, look in my mind, he, he is a hero of Australia. He is a great man who, and a visionary, and, uh, about what Australia could become and how good Australia was. And he, like, like Sir Robert Menzies, he, he, he knew that we had to to change and build a better nation for us. As you said, everything's not perfect when you're dealing with human beings. Human beings are not perfect, so, so things are not perfect. Uh, but what what they did was build in an enormous foundation for things to happen. You know, as, as you're correct, the, 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 you know, in Indigenous Affairs or Native Affairs, as they called it in those days, was, was in, under the control of the states. That. The, only, the Commonwealth Government only had powers in the Northern Territory because they were, they were the administrators of the Northern Territory. And, and, and Paul Hasluck knew that if, if we were going to really have bringing people together and giving equality and rights to people, then they had to have that 67 referendum to do that. So what, what Sir Paul Hasluck and, and, uh, and Robert, Sir Robert Menzies did was build the foundations... And build the institutions that could make those changes. So getting that constitutional change, simple as it may be, just a couple of sentences, really a change. Uh, I was a benefactory of the education. They really went to getting because as a child in the 60s, that they that they, they changed the education systems and working with working with uh, states and territories in these areas about bringing Aboriginals into the mainstream education uh, system and getting uh, full opportunities that those education systems would build a career and a life for us. And that's what it did for me. It's really fun. And how they put money and spent money in that space because they could now because they had that constitutional change and, 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 and get the states to do these things. And it was quite marvellous to some of the incredible people that come out from that and had the benefit of that. So, so that they did that. They did, did a whole lot of other things in regard to discriminatory laws and, get, and working with the state to get to change. You know, support those like went on with uh, you know, Harold Holt and they, and they did They're the funds who finally got the referendum up. And then you talk and you see all the different amazing changes for, for my life for a whole lot of uh, Indigenous people in this country.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, another... When we talk about institutions, one that I don't think people also associate, particularly with Menzies, which which they should, is um, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies, which is now known as the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. That was established in 1964 but it was established in the aftermath of a conference which has just celebrated its 60th anniversary and the conference was set up really under the auspices of cabinet decisions in 1961. It was a conference on Australian Aboriginal Studies really looking at um, how how Australia could go about preserving Aboriginal culture and this was a decision of the, of the Menzies Cabinet and the academic there was Emeritus Professor um, W.E.H. Stanner who was a, a, a leading figure. I mean, he was, a, he was a white man. He was a leading figure in um, Aboriginal studies but that was part of the Menzies Government legacy and institution-building towards um, equality for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians um, and that was, you know, 1961 and then the Institute established in 1964. It lives to this day. It's an important centre to preserve Aboriginal, the learning of Aboriginal culture and cultural identity and languages but I don't think people recognise that that was also part of the efforts that the Menzies government made and, and his ministers towards really elevating the status of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia?
1: It brought it into the mainstream because uh, up until that uh, period, uh, Aboriginals, uh, uh, in, in Indigenous people, Torres Strait Islanders, were, were on the fringe of society and, and no-one really knew much about them. They, they were these people who lived in the fringe, they lived in Aboriginal reserves, they worked uh, on cattle stations and stuff like that in the rural community That uh, but they were sort of out of sight, really, and so and no one knew very much about the culture. So by setting up My Answers, as it is known today, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, it is it it has got this uh, it's brought Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, uh, culture. And uh, studies into into universities and into the education system, where people could learn about uh, Aboriginal culture, people could study it. People, uh, Aboriginal people, and then and then you, and you see that all that, uh, the people who uh, who have become lost, you know, uh, through through certain laws, uh, you know, the, uh, welfare laws and so on, they're able to find their history, their families. Uh, have had that relationship, you know, and and then you see the enormous coming out of that, of course, the the, the reinvigoration of Aboriginal art uh, and and how that has become a global industry, really. I've been in in lawyer offices in New York and London and and you see these amazing Indigenous art hanging on their walls, Australian art, and it brought Aboriginal culture into the mainstream and it made it part of our society. Now, what a you know, what a visionary thing to do, and we're the benefactories of, of that as well. You know, here we are, you know, 50 years later and 60, years, and we got this incredible uh, institution, we've got these incredible uh, people who are turning out a, a number of really great researchers and academics and so on and educating people. It has an incredible, powerful thing, getting people to vote, getting them able to stand for parliament or, or to stand for the local council. I was a deputy mayor in, in Dara, uh for a number of years. And so, so getting those things to happen and getting people to have their voice, you know, that just gave people a voice to go up to be play part of, of the Australian community as well. They gave them a voice into that area.
0: Yeah, quite a phenomenal legacy um, of uh, not just legislative but institution building. Um, in the Robert Menzies Institute, its home is at Melbourne Uni and Melbourne Uni is the custodian of uh, Sir Robert's personal library and it's about 4,000 books and papers. And actually one of the papers in that collection is the the book of conference papers delivered at the 1961 conference on Australian Aboriginal Studies, and it lives in the Bailey Library at Melbourne University to this day. So uh, we certainly look forward to having having that book on on display in our exhibition space uh, when we open that in in February, because it is a it is a tangible legacy of the of the efforts to to uh, to establish, iatsis and uh, and of course really really bring into the mainstream as you said Warren Aboriginal culture and identity and uh, and art and language and of course you know it's such an uh, international success. I wanted to talk to you Warren too about Native Title and Menzies. Now na- Native Title obviously was something that the um, High Court determined much later in the in the 1990s but in August 1963, uh, Menzies is still Prime Minister, still has three years to go. Menzies' government decided to release uh, a parcel of land in the Arnhem Land Reserve in the Northern Territory to a foreign owned mining company. They did this without consulting the Yonggu people who lived there. And the Yonggu people uh, then proceeded to submit to Federal Parliament, to the House of Representatives. Bark petitions, which became known as the Kala Bark Petitions, and they are considered the first formal assertion of native title. Now, in response to this, Menzies actually set up a select committee to inquire into the concerns of the Yongu people, and the committee recommended the protection of the sacred sites and and the award of compensation for the lost lost land and livelihood to to the local people. And this was a real landmark achievement for. Aboriginal people in the in the passage towards native title. Again, I don't think particularly well acknowledged in sort of Australia's you know cultural history and political storytelling and our myth making. Uh, but but no, this was a first stage in 1963 during the Menzies government, and the men and Menzies allowed that. A select committee to be to be formed to inquire into the issues, and happily for the Yongu people, they did receive native title in the end um, uh, under the um, Aboriginal Land Rights Northern Territory Act 1976. But unfortunately for them, the ma- mine was excluded from that grant. But tell me Warren, how do we reconcile some of the myth making in Australia when it comes to native title and and the Menzies government?
1: And you see a boffin when he's pouring the sand into Vincent Lingari's hand, and that's an iconic photo. Prior to, to that, because it, it was a, the Liberal government under Billy McMahon who started those negotiations for that, for that with Lord Vesty about the handover of that land, and 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 they had actually completed those negotiations. Uh, but then 80, uh, the uh, 72 election I should say uh, Happened in, in, in the course of the change of government And so he was able, uh, Goffert was able to take all the credit And, and, and in regard to, it, to the native title stuff You know we look at, uh, and Menzies is very smart about this uh, About constitutional law and that uh, Native title was only to be only, Everyone thinks it's Aboriginal law And in actual fact it's not It's, it's about rights under English common law, which, uh, with the Lockean theories, uh, that uh, created our institutions in Australia uh, for colonisation, then, of course, the creation of the Commonwealth Cup in 1901. And when you look at the the, the Blackburn case and the Mabo cases, which got that native title through, they were all based on that going back through that Steps back to their 60s, but also going right back into English common law about uh, uh, who uh, who owns land. These institutions that we have have been able to give us that. You look at the land rights yeah, uh, legislation was, that was passed in 1976 by the Fraser government. Um, so they, uh, that was, again, it was the Westminster system of government that was able to negotiate that and get that through, that legislation through. This is a gradual change, and the the gradual changes happen because of those foundations and those structures that were built there, and that made it possible for the things we are doing today and how we're moving forward today as a nation. And uh, and we need to talk about those people. We need to talk about, uh, you know, Sir Paul has like an amazing... (laughs) See, see, you, you got me on the hobby. I didn't know about that nineteen forties uh, when he did. How amazing is that?
0: Yeah, no, there's, uh, there's, uh, I think a lot that we can, we can uncover. I think uh, you picked up on something that's really important about Menzies and um, and policy reform and um, in Australia and, and how he, he conducted his governments over, well, cumulatively over 18 years, but particularly from 49 to 66, that 16-year that period. He was an incre- incrementalist. He didn't announce a policy, you know, dramatic policy change on Australia without building support and uh, and preparing the policy and political territory for the change and he did do things slowly and that's a criticism leveled against him but it's also i think a way of understanding his success that he didn't force through change before society was ready for it he led he wasn't a follower at all. No one would say that of Menzies. And, of course, was a, a, a perfect practitioner in the art of persuasion. But I, I wanted to pick up, Warren, on uh, why it is that, that people like yourself and, and Neville Bonner um, are attracted to that Menzies in liberalism. The What was it about Menzies and, and his um, political philosophy that attracted... Indigenous politicians. Uh, I mean, Neville Bonner's story is amazing. Uh, he was uh, an incredible example of self belief, of hard work, of of complete and utter resilience, uh, and uh, and he he also rejected the presumption that he would be of the left or or a, a, or, or a representative of the left. He. He uh, he really admired Robert Menzies. He wasn't an MP in the Menzies years. He he um, entered the Parliament in the nineteen seventies after well after Menzies had retired. But but he but he definitely saw himself as a child of Menzies politically, didn't he?
1: We live in a country that is uh, one of the greatest countries in the history of humanity. This Western democracy, Western liberalism has given people longer lives uh, more prosperity uh, economic growth the rule of law you know the you know the, the they have to, you know, you just can't be dragged off by, you know, like some South American dictatorship. You have to go, and you have these rights, you have freedoms of speech, you have these freedoms that you enjoy here. And 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 my father was, was very similar in a lot of ways that he he believed, you know, you had to work. Very simple guy, had to work, had to feed your family, had to get a roof over their head. Uh, you know, had to, they had to have a better life than you, so making sure they're getting educated. They're very strong about education, making things happen for people. And so I, I was brought up with the same same uh, background. And and that's why, you know, when I was in, in the, the Labour Party, you know, I was on the right wing of the Labour Party. It's one of the reasons I left it was because it was it, uh, you know, I like the whole Keating period because of that reform agenda, you know, and that's what this is what Menzies That word about destroying the structures or the fabric. which you hear on the streets today, we need to pull this all down, this colonial stuff, and destroy it. So this is the thing that really got me it's about how you get the how do you build those environments using the structures that we have which is so good that you're able to do that in other countries in the world you've got to have a revolution to make a change you've got to tear the whole structures down you've got to burn everything in Australia we, don't. we, we have a very very powerful weapon our powerful weapon is, is a is a pencil and a bit of paper which you get into a little little cardboard box and you <laughs> Your he's going to be the leader of the country or the leader of the state. That is so simple. While in other countries, they've got to have guns and they've got to have tanks and they've got to have things to make those changes. And, and we keep using those things because in the history of the world, you you, you know, I've studied history, so you are, you know, thousands of years, we've got the best society in the world today. Is it a perfect society? No, there's no such thing as a society. Society, and uh, when you're dealing with human beings, we, uh, we do some silly things sometimes. But it's been able to create an incredible culture here. Uh, you know,
0: yeah, and it's um, you're so right about um, Australia being able to. To reform and evolve um, within the existing structures of its institutions uh, without revolution—that's actually quite unusual when you look at the sort of global global s- picture. Warren, you you talk very much in in terms of uh, a Burkean conservative. You believe in strong institutions, and 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 I can understand you see yourself as very much a fellow traveller with Menzies in in that respect. Uh, I wondered if we could finish off our discussion today on, on Afternoon Light uh, talking about the current push for constitutional recognition um, of uh, Indigenous Australians and, uh, and particularly the, the idea of the, the voice to parliament that came out of the Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, and, of course, there's a treaty involved in that proposal how do you think Menzies – and you know, this is hypothetical, we don't know. Menzies passed away in 1978. He resi- retired as Prime Minister in 1966. Things have changed. But how do you think Menzies would view the um, voice to Parliament as proposed by the Uluru Statement?
1: Uh, you're right. You know, we don't know what he, he thought. It was a different period, a different time. Um, I, I, look, I look around the world, and where you have a race base in which Menzies wanted, to, and Sir Paul Haslock has like and Harold Holt now, wanted to remove from our constitution. Because we went from that, we went for that for a, in a hundred years, uh, from uh, 150 years of colonization to that period, we wanted to move from race-based. We we wanted the people, uh, you know, to have. A say, everyone has a say. So you look at the people, Aboriginals are sitting in record numbers in the Commonwealth Parliament and there's more to come. And you've got and in the state parliaments around Australia and even in the local government areas, you know, you, uh, you know we have never had a better time for representation of people.
0: Is that, is that right? It, on a per capita basis, is the level of Indigenous representation in the federal parliament the highest now?
1: The highest has ever been. You've got, you've got, of course, Ken White, who, who's, 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 who's who cabinet. So these are the things that Menzies and Paul has Now this is a fantastic we, we had the first Indigenous person in parliament of any parliament, Commonwealth common parliament, parliament so, uh, was Neville Bonner. Uh, you had the first Indigenous person in the Queensland Parliament, and that was Eric Burrell. Now he, he was the, of the Country Party. Uh, uh, the uh, in, in Nova was the Liberal Party. You look at Hyacinth uh, in in uh, in the Northern Territories, the first Aboriginal in the Legislative Assembly in the Northern Country Liberal Party member. Uh, you look you look at uh, all these incredible people around around the country, and you in there the legacies of that simple 1962 and 67 discussion, give them the vote, take race out of the constitution. I I'm worried, I see governments around Australia, around the world, I should say, that do have race with them. We saw in, in Fiji they've taken race out of their constitution now. It, it is, it, they had about four or five coups. You know, we have had... Uh, Amazing, uh, peaceful uh, trans- transition of our of our nation through through these institutions that we have. I see that uh, having that voice to Parliament will will weaken our major institution, which is the Constitution and the Commonwealth Parliament.
0: Well, thank you very much, Warren, for such a uh, enlightening discussion on the Menzies legacy to Indigenous affairs, um, something that I think we've got to continue to have. I think there's a your book to be written, which I look forward to, but, but also um, at the Robert Menzies Institute, we will be looking at these issues in much more detail because I think there is a lot we can learn, the good, the bad and all, all that is in between from what was done in the Menzies era and, uh, and how we can look to the future too. To ensure that um, reconciliation and uh, closing the gap are all are all things that we um, we can support, whether it's through constitutional recognition or not, whether it's preserving our institutions, upholding the um, Menzies aspiration of equality of all individuals in Australia should surely be the aspiration of us all. So, thank you very much, Warren Mundine, for joining me on Afternoon Light.
1: That's, that's great. Um, I'll just finish off by saying that they'll probably may turn over in their grave, but Sir Paul has, like, and Sir Robert Menzies were revolutionaries, but they did it the right way. They took people in you know, a democracy, they took people with them, they took the parliaments with them, and they built very strong institutions and, and, and paid respect to those institutions to make
0: the legacies we have today. Very well put. Thank you, Warren. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.